Welcome to the J.D. Power Travel Podcast. I'm Michael Vermillion with J.D. Power, and with me today are Mike Taylor, who leads our travel practice, and Jenny Corwin, our lead analyst for travel. Mike and Jenny, welcome. Hi. Good afternoon. Hey, Mike, let's kick things off with airlines. So we, uh, we recently saw a, a news announcement about United Airlines expanding their economy cabin snack selection and specifically, it looks like they're bringing back the Stroopwafel. Yeah, Stroopwafel is just fun to say. Uh, and one of the things that we've noticed in the North American Airlines study is that um, there really is a sensitivity to the variety of snacks that are offered. If they're coming down the aisle with just that pretzel bag, you know, that's really kind of, you know, run-of-the-mill, you know, decades, uh, almost centuries-old uh, snacks. But we've seen that airlines that offer a variety of snacks, especially some that are a little bit off, that aren't you know, your typical peanuts and pretzels that have been offered for so long, really do make an impression on the passenger. And they feel that the variety of food is actually greater than perhaps it actually is, because not every flight is going to have a hot meal served on it. And logistically, it just isn't possible to feed an aircraft of 145 people when you're only going 800 or 1,000 miles. So the Stroopwafel is, uh, fulfills two different kinds of things that we see in the data. One is having that unusual thing that you can only seemingly only have on an airline in flight. And let's face it, you know, you're not going down the aisle of your stop and shop and seeing Stroopwafel. So it's kind of exotic and different. And they also have a maple cookie, I believe, is one of their other alternatives on some other flights. So these are things that are a little bit unusual, somewhat unique, and that drives a distinction and satisfaction with the airline passenger. Okay, thanks, Mike. Hey, Jenny, uh, turning to hotels, uh, in the news uh, recently was uh, Marriott and actually a lawsuit by the District of Columbia, and it looks like actually the attorneys general for all 50 states. And this is around this idea of uh, tacking on resort fees to the bill uh, at the end of the stay. And then um, according to the, uh, the, the lawsuit here, it's about uh, potentially uh, – those resort fees be misleading uh, because the uh, the hotel chain not properly advertising uh, you know that rate to include it in the final room price. So, so, what, so what's happening here? Is this um, uh, something that's been going on for a while, or are we going to continue to see this uh, you know, kind of battle over resort fees? Yeah. So I. I don't think resort fees are particularly new. I've seen them quite often in, in many different hotels. It's not just Marriott hotels. Um, you, you think you're paying one price, and then you go to checkout, and you have a, a $40 fee for the Wi-Fi and the fitness center, regardless of what you use, right? And they, that's their resort fee, amenities fee. They, they have different names for the same thing. Um, right now, I don't, I don't see them going away, right? They're a hot topic because of the lawsuit, but also they're just being picked up a lot uh, in terms of the OTAs as well, they're fighting back against these resort fees. Um, they're not getting a commission on those because it's not part of the advertised price. Uh, so actually, Booking.com has recently instated a 15% commission on resort fees that they're charging back to the hotels. Uh, Expedia is going about it a little bit more altruistically in terms of they're just trying to highlight some of those resort fees and make them more transparent for the customer. I think the big issue with resort fees is, one, I mean, in terms of guest satisfaction, I don't think I've ever seen a fee increase guest satisfaction um, in all of my time doing research around it. Um, if we find one, I think the hotels will be very happy to know what it is. But right now, there's no fee that makes guests happier. Um, 
and, and it does feel a bit um, of a bait and switch, right? You, you think you're paying one price, especially in some areas where you get, you think you get a great deal, you're paying $80 a night, and then you have a $50 resort fee, right? It, it can be nearly half or more of, of what you're actually paying for the room sometimes, depending on uh, what scale you're looking at in the room or where you're going. Um, Las Vegas talking about you on that one, but uh, I think I I get the reason that hotels are doing that. It's a great source of ancillary revenue. It does, um, you know, pay for some of these, some of these resources that they're providing to guests, allows them to create uh, great services and uh, offer these things without having, um, you know, an additional menu. But from the guest perspective, um, you're making me pay for something I may or may not be using, and you're not being upfront about it. So there's no way that's going to lead to increased guest satisfaction, but I don't see them going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. So we'll uh, continue to see this kind of battle over transparency of fees. But the uh, the OTA angle on this thing is interesting, too, in that uh, if, if, if the hotel is charging the resort fee after the fact, uh, they're not paying you know, commission to the OTAs on it. So uh, that's another kind of angle to the story there. So, Mike, uh, turning to airports, um, O'Hare made an interesting announcement uh, recently. Uh, They picked a a very famous um, architect to design uh, two new terminals at O'Hare, and I guess this is what, what, a multi-billion dollar expansion? Yes, it is uh, in the multi-billion dollars, which has been desperately needed. Uh, As anybody's listened to this podcast before, really the big factors in airport improvement uh, are – you know, is the economy doing well? Are people traveling? Is their revenues going through the airport itself? Are the airlines making money? Because uh, those are the those are the two big factors that determine whether an airport expansion is going to happen or not. Those two things have to be happen in conjunction with each other. And we're right in that sweet spot. And we have been in actually that sweet spot before, but 9-11-2001 threw a monkey wrench into everybody's plans. And it's really just taken this long for the airline industry to recover. So these plans that are currently in process, uh, I think I believe it's Skidmore Owings and Merrill has been designated as the main architect, uh, and that's kind of uh, annoyed the original architect, Helmut Jan, I believe is his name, who originally died, d- designed O'Hare, which at the time was a great concept. It had that natural light, very high ceilings, and that, that kind of thing. But today, with the amount of passengers that are in that uh, space, in O'Hare itself, you know, the concourses are just half to one-third as big as they need to be to give people a sense of that space. It's all over their head, but they're, you know, jostling, jostling people side by side. And then the intrusion of TSA equipment, which wasn't around 20-some years ago, has made that some parts of that concourse even smaller. So there's several million people passing by points in that terminal, in the main uh, current terminal that's only about 12 feet wide. And that's a causes sort of a fire hose or a garden hose effect. Uh, really doesn't do much for satisfaction. And the gatehold areas aren't big enough for the aircraft that are you know, parking outside of them right now. So this is something that's way overdue. Um, it's good. The, the current design that it looks like is very futuristic, has a lot of natural light, and follows the same type of architectural that architecture that we see in successful airports that rate very highly. That is creating a very large space. Uh, sort of like an agora or a marketplace um, in the airport itself, so people don't feel crowded. They're having very high ceilings, have very light materials, white metal, and also probably um, mostly translucent uh, windows up top that give a lot of natural light to the space below. So the current um, plans that they have at O'Hare 
are A, fantastic looking at least, and then B, fantastically expensive. So, but that's the trend that's happening. And we're going to see the same type of things happen at LAX uh, and at the New York airports, especially JFK and LaGuardia in the near future. Okay, thanks, Mike. So, so kind of sticking with the airport theme here, uh, we saw another interesting announcement out at Denver uh, where Denver says that the number of passengers going through the airport is going up, but the number of people parking in the garage is actually going down. And as a result, they're shelving plans for um, adding to the, the parking garage. Uh, I think they're pointing to Uber, Lyft, the A-Line train, but, but what's happening here? What, and, and what's the implication for the airports and the implication for the, uh, the passengers? Well, this is just a pure case of economic substitution. So you need to get to the airport. And if the airport offers you, or at least the geography that you're in, offers you several alternatives, you're going to pick the most convenient and most price-effective one for you. Uh, so today that means, you know, for example, DIA, uh, Denver International Airport, uh, oh, about two years ago uh, had a, a train that's going from well, somewhat near downtown Denver all the way out to the airport. And if you remember, they put that airport way, way, way away from the, uh, the downtown area. It was quite a hike versus Stapleton Airport, but that's where they had the space in which to expand. So people are uh, able to take that train. And then Uber and Lyft are providing extraordinarily uh, cost-effective door-to-door transportation and breaking up some of the monopolies that the taxi uh, and um, uh, delivery services have had over the years in airports and in, in particular certain cities, not necessarily Denver, but certainly out here in the New York area uh, where a taxi cab medallion, uh, you know, the ability to operate one cab uh, that one medallion allows you to operate that cab infinitum as a rental property. Um, those used to be worth traded around a million dollars. They're currently worth about $25,000. So Uber, Lyft, and the alternatives of mass transportation that are convenient have really ca caused this economic substitution to happen. And this is affecting the, one of the major revenue sources of airports, which is parking your vehicle next to the terminal. So a lot of these lots are going empty. Uh, some of them are still being filled uh, simply because there's so much excess demand. But as people get a little bit more annoyed with not being able to park near the, uh, near the airport building itself, they're going to choose these other substitutes, mainly Uber, Lyft, and any of their mass transportation that's near their home. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Jenny, let's finish up with a, with a digital story here. So uh, pretty interesting. Um, announcement from IHG uh, where they have launched something called a shoppable hotel room. And I guess the idea here is that the uh, shoppable room allows anyone to buy direct from top artists and craftspeople uh, from around the world in one place on social media. So, so I suppose these are kind of hand-picked items from, from artisans that are in the room, and then you can just go onto social media and, and buy them. Uh, so this introducing uh, this uh, idea of local um, as well. So is this, um, you know, what's your point of view on this? Um, uh, what's the experience uh, change going to be here for guests, and, and is this something we're likely, likely to see more of? I, I think we'll see it more, but only in a certain space, right? Right now, Hotel Indico is doing it. They're a little bit more boutique-focused, and I, I feel like this fits with what feels boutique to, to what we've seen and, and what just sounds like the industry really leans towards. I think it's a great way to uh, extend 
the hotel guest experience digitally, but also incorporate local themes and expand your your experience beyond the time you're spending in the hotel room, right? So if you are able to experience a local artist in the hotel room, you fall in love with it, you take it home um, because you purchase it on this platform, then you're, you're reliving that experience. You're creating a, a stronger connection not only to the brand, but likely to that decor, to that local destination. So um, I, I think it's an interesting trend. If it is something that we start to see a little bit more of, I think it's uh, – um, a great way for hotels to incorporate local, which we know has a great impact on guest experience and guest satisfaction, um, especially if it's authentic local, which if they're using local artists, it will be. Um, and, and it's a way for hotels to continue to differentiate the experience and, and build build an actual relationship with the guests, right? So you're, you're creating memories together. So. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, to learn more about the J.D. Power travel practice, please visit us on the web at jdpower.com business, and we'll see you next time.